Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 481 of the Constructor Criticism Podcast. I'm your host, Heezy, and I am joined by my co-host, uh, currently in his re- uh, reputation era, Mason Clark. In my reputation era? That's not like the one where she's mad? Uh, it is the one where she lets loose and, like, you know, lets people know when they're wrong or stupid, which you have been doing on the podcast lately. Have I been? Yeah, you've specifically used those words, even. That's unbelievable. <laughs> and, and, and the man in his red era, we've got Ace Nine. What was my red era? What? I also don't know what the red era means. I'm, I'm, I'm confused on the era talk, but I'm happy it's, to be in It's Taylor Swift. Those are her albums. Reputation Red. Right. But I don't know what Red is, because Red was the one where she was burgeoning into pop music, is all I know. Yeah, it's like her Oh, trans- I'm on the cusp. Yeah, you're you the, it's before you move to New York, it's you're you're good you're you're transitioning into a new phase of your life. I dig it. I'm about it. Welcome to New York. That's that's not that album. That's the next album. <laughs> oh sorry, copyright's gonna happen if I keep singing. There a DMCA I know for, for real. We're not gonna be talking about the Eras tour, even though did I did see that movie, guys. It is fantastic. You guys should see it. It's it's great. We are gonna be instead talking about uh kind of tuning your deck and looking at the metagame while doing that and, and trends in the metagame, things like that. Before we do that though, the point of the show is to be always improving. Just like Taylor Swift and her music. And the fact that it just always keeps getting better, we too try to be better each and every week in everything that we can do, whether it's life, whether it's magic, whether it's our, our taste in music, Abe, catch up, come on, man, you gotta, you gotta, I mean, at this point, everyone's doing it, Abe. We, we're trying to get better all the time. Uh, I'm gonna go first this week, and I had the opportunity to do something different for myself. I played a lot of magic, I decided, like, after after not playing as much before, uh, outside of arena, uh, was able to play a league, and that uh, with a deck that I was considering going to the challenge, was able to play a challenge, um, and then even was able to play some, some more after that, quite a bit. And the there was an interesting moment today that I had that I think I preach a lot on the podcast, but I don't always put into practice, and that's playing with discipline. Um, today I was playing a lot of gruel vehicles, getting ready. I still plan on doing a deck tech I said I was going to do on on that deck for Pioneer um, after kind of the updates and the, the new things that are going on with that deck. And uh, I was playing against uh, Black Red Midrange. And, you know, it, it's so easy to look at a card in your hand and kind of willy-nilly cast it, just like when you're, especially when you're on Arena and stuff like that. And I realized I was like, the only card that's even going to matter in this game is a Shialdred if my opponent casts it. So I had a, an Akron War in my hand and just was like, okay, well, I'm just not going to cast this card unless they cast a Shialdred. Uh, and uh, lo and behold, my opponent cast a Shialdred. I took it. I accrued my vehicle and they died. And I was like, you know, if I had cast this card willy-nilly to like deal eight damage or something, I actually probably would have lost to this game. And I know that going into, like, you know, it's why the card's in my deck, right? It's it's to get rid of either a really big creature or to pressure aggressive decks into attacking into my bigger creatures. Um, and I know that's what the card's for, but it, it's it's one thing to know that and have available mana. And what, what I ended up doing is actually attacking with a, 
with like a a two two. What's the name of the green? The the X one. Layer of the Hydra. Layer of the Hydra. Thank you. I ended up attacking with like a two two layer of the Hydra instead of you instead. And I don't know. I think that I would not always make that play on arena. Um, but the fact that I've been playing more magic and and really focusing on on winning and getting back to where I was before this year, as far as my my ability and my discipline, I guess, uh, really really made me focus on it. It was it was an always improving moment that I've I've already gone through, but sometimes it's important to go through them again. I, I want to note too for listeners because I think you used a word there that you don't. I mean, maybe you do, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you were saying focused on winning. You kind of don't actually mean, like, winning. You mean focusing on, like, what matters and playing with intent, right? And, like, not actually just jamming. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to win every game that I play, typically, but uh, it's that doesn't mean that I am thinking of every single game holistically and putting in... I mean, Magic's a really mentally taxing game. I think that we often act like it's not, and then so often you can get away with, I don't know, like jamming, like you said, that you you forget the, the amount of effort it takes to play disciplined and to do the things that you know you're supposed to do. I mean, if, I, like, if they don't have Shelter there, I jam, right? I take their thing, I attack them for eight, and they probably die the next turn if they don't have Shelter. But if they do have Shelter, I just lose on the spot. So I, instead of taking the faster lane in which they have the, they, in the case they don't have the out, I take the slower lane to get the same win that I would get if they didn't have the out, but it takes longer. Yeah, you yeah. like macroed the matchup. And you're yeah, like, exactly. well, this is the only card that matters is Shieldred. And I even have my answer to Shieldred. So why make Shieldred matter? Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for taking the time to play with the intent of like not playing on autopilot and not making the play that looks most appealing just on the board state and taking the time to like think through the full scope of the decision and like how you're using all your resources in a game because it's so easy and so often when you're just jamming to be like okay yeah i'm just gonna like tap all my mana and cast my spell it looks good here it, i can do it and otherwise what am i gonna do attack for two with my lair of the hydra that doesn't seem like as strong right in this sense but when you're actually playing i think a good distinction there is playing like to win rather than just playing to play, it's like you're playing to make the decisions that are going to end in you winning the game, not playing to make the decisions that are in front of you just happening in the game. Kind of like, and the more, I think that as a listener, the more that you spend your time playing with the broader view in mind, any of us, if you spend time playing, trying to not play on autopilot instead of make decisions, you start to see a lot of gains for that. I'm glad that's something you're able to get time back into, Spencer, because I know it'll be. Yeah. It's, it, it's awesome. It actually, funnily enough, came up because of playing Rhinos this weekend. Uh, which we can get into another time, but like that deck's really easy to play on autopilot. But the interesting decisions from that deck actually come from when you can't do that. Heuristics are the death of tournaments. Heuristics <laughs> are the death of tournaments. I'm gonna right. get it on a shirt. <laughs> I mean, you should write a song about it, put it on your reputation album, Mason. What's next? My always improving moment comes actually from uh, last week. I think I was, I think it was on air at the end of the episode. Maybe it was afterwards. I, I talked about how. Um, I've never actually played against or with coffers, you know, like it just never come up even in coaching with like VOD review coffers had somehow I, I, never entered my life. I think it was on the episode. Yeah. And that was the thing where I was thinking about it. And I was like, listen, I feel pretty confident about how coffers plays. 
I feel pretty confident. You told me, you know, Mason, you're playing an RCQ. You have to play coffers. I think I can know what to do. But I was like, but I should put a little bit of time in if something comes up and it happens. And my Friday was a little slower than usual. And I got my stuff done. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to play that coffers league and I'm going to do it. And it was a fun time. I don't think I like learned a whole lot, but it was very much like, okay, yeah, these things kind of play out this way. The deck still has these problems and it has these strengths. And that is like helpful to know. And, you know, sometimes it's just about like actually doing or checking the work and specifically doing, right? Like you might think you know how a deck works, but it's very possible that I play it and I would come my way with it. And I'm like, actually, you know, the coffers deck played totally differently than I thought. And, you know, I thought Shieldred was going to be kind of stinky, but actually she was great, you know. Um, or to be fair, I thought Shieldred was great. But, uh, you know, like it, you might come and learn something different or learn the truth, right? So there's some amount of just doing the work there and actually like, playing the games and uh a thing we i talk a lot about is like you're diminishing returns and playing your deck over and over and over again and you know me playing uh another league of like four color or whatever isn't going to be that helpful but getting a lot out of coffers i feel a lot better uh you know more solid about my opinions on things so that's my always a brief moment i'm kind of curious uh, i did my coffers testing as i kind of hinted that i was gonna do on the podcast on that thursday uh with with uh, qj and matt what conclusions did you come to um, about about the deck? I mean, Coffers, I think, is, like, textbook pretty good against, like, the top of the metagame, and then everyone else comes for you, and you're like, oh, no, and you get shanked, you know? And so, like, I feel like I was really good against, like, I played against um, a bunch, actually, I played against a bunch of the not-top decks, and then I played against Scam once. I'm sorry, not Scam, uh, Beans, excuse me. I did not play against game. I played against Beans. My Beans matchup was really easy. I had, like, Bowmasters and Shieldreds, and, like, you know, my ring is actually, like, pretty good because I gain life, and they can't really pressure me, and I just went over the top of them with Karn, right? And, like, all that stuff I thought was true. And then I ended up actually losing playing with a 5-0 in the league. Um, but, like, when I played against these other decks, I really struggled to, like, actually keep up. And, like, I, I think I got really lucky in, like, a Tron match against somebody who, like, I had a very nice interaction with them in chat where, like, it was their first time playing Modo and they were newer to Modern. And I think it was a moment of they just mis-evaluated uh, kind of what mattered. But I think, like, had they known to grab this one card from the card board, they would have just beat me. And so, like, I, I kind of struggled with the ancillary stuff around. But I felt really good about, like, beans, rings, and, like, mid-range matchups. Those I felt good against. So yeah, we we came to similar conclusions to the point where we questioned whether it was even the Karn Coffer stuff was even like the good part of the deck or even the important part at this point in the metagame. And if it was just like Thoughtseize, Fatal Push, Field of the Dead, Sheltered, Bowmaster is the actual important part. Um, and like the ring to just keep going. Yeah. Like it, like the, you don't, funnily enough, when your deck is all super cheap, it doesn't actually matter if you draw a bunch of cards with the ring because you can still end up mm -hmm. casting them. Um, you don't actually yeah. need the coffers. But. Yeah, it, I like the the Karn stuff against four color, but that's like it. Can I, I bet you could find something that like in the middle. Yeah, can I just shoot a sign and blip, Mason Clark? I mean, I think that card's fine. That's not that's not so. We, we definitely uh, <laughs> we definitely had to play uh, after the after the challenge where we sign and blooded our opponent with mm -hmm. uh, Sheldon and play. Uh, oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. so, so. I, I played I played Mono Blackburn before. Yeah. You come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding, speaking to me as if I haven't done this. <laughs> but no, I, I was curious. I'm glad. Thanks, thanks for sharing. I think. No, of course. I think that modern is 
has constantly been shifting and people do not appreciate that about the format right now. They, they're constantly calling Doomer when it has basically not stopped shifting since, well, we can get into that another, at the end of the episode. I'm low key Doomer, but I've got a new <laughs> meme that I'm trying to spread, which is I wanted them to Sean Bean the Bean, AKA kill it off. So, you know, like if we can just Sean Bean the Bean, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'd be very happy. But uh, yeah, anyways, Abe, how are you doing? What's up with you? It's always improving. Uh, yeah, so it's actually my always proving pretty similar to yours, Mason, in that um, something that I find that I've done a lot in the past and do a lot with formats, especially when it like, comes to RCQ seasons and, um, you know, especially formats like Modern, where I, like, I've been set on playing Scam um, for quite a while. I've been playing it through, like, the last few weeks of RCQ season and had some close near misses, uh, especially on hitting... Uh, my top eights but like still i'm playing like six or seven round events and going like x2 and, and all of them pretty easily feeling good about like the deck my play but what i've done this week is i went back and i was like i'm gonna keep on exploring what's out there and keep identifying like keep digging into like some of these fringe decks that are up and coming like especially domain zoo has had a pretty strong showing um in my like local metagame and area and it's like kind of interesting because i didn't think that deck was that strong on paper didn't look like it necessarily stacked up but you know and playing it myself and kind of understanding the appeal of it understanding its strengths and weaknesses especially after losing to it it's been like maybe half of my losses i've taken at rcqs in the last month have been just to that one deck so i don't know if it was like my approach from the scam side or anything like that. really buckling down and saying okay you know i'm gonna keep digging into and understanding what's going on in the modern format not just from the scope of i know what my 75 is going to be basically and like what slots are going to change for me based on what i expect the room to be like but also saying you know what is going on in these decks where you know i kind of get how they function like you were saying mason by like looking at them on paper and i have my assumptions about things but uh taking the time to really follow through and you know keep working on it and keep understanding it not only to be ready for you know, my next event, but maybe like an event two or three months from now where I might need the information or six months from now where it's like, okay, how does this deck stack up if there's been no changes? You know, what were the strengths or weaknesses of this deck? Uh, what, why would I play it? Why would I not play it? Um, and, and allowing that to kind of continue to lend itself to my feeling on modern right now, where I think a lot of archetypes are underexplored and under refined i think there's like not a lot of work being done to get uh, a lot of these decks in the like post pt like metagame to their final final forms you know the ones who are like the most streamlined most uh most refined down from what they were coming out of the event to like their actual last stage and so uh you know, kind of doing my part in trying to figure out what the, what that is by looking at all of the things that have come after it, even though I haven't seen many new cards um, making a huge impact outside of Beans, but what that really looks like and uh, and just not not kind of like falling back and like, okay, yeah, I can just stop like, you know, playing matches with new decks and, you know, really seeing what's going on in the format on a like, you know, day-to-day level uh, just because I feel comfortable with the deck I'm playing. Were you playing a Tribal Flames version or looking at Tribal Flames versions or the non-Tribal Flames versions that are kind of like more mid-rangey black cards? Uh, the Tribal Flames version. The one that's just like the Domain Creatures, Wild Nicotle Ragavans, Bolts, Flames, Bindings, cool. Bowmasters, etc. Yeah. That is going to do it for Always Improving. If you want to 
uh, support the show, one of the best ways to do that is heading over to patreon.com slash ccmtg, become a patron of the show, starting at, uh, you know, $1, $5 to get you access to the Discord, we, we really appreciate it, you know, we, you get access to, early access to shows, t- tons of benefits, the show will always be free, but it does mean a lot to us when, you know, we've, we've given enough back that you feel like you can give, give back to us, so. Let's go into the training grounds, considering the metagame when tuning your deck. So, this episode is, we're, we're going to dive into breaking down the decisions that you're making when tuning, and what what are you considering when doing that, uh, when it comes to either trends in the metagame, the things that are happening in the format, things like that. I think that when you think about a topic like this, the reason that it matters, uh, there was an episode of the Jerry T podcast um, a, a few weeks ago, and uh, you know, I'm I'm not ashamed too uh, too proud to like mention other great podcasts and when they have a really good moment. And there was a moment where Jerry T is talking about two drops in the green black mid range deck um, in standard and kind of the options and how he come came to the conclusion of, of what he wanted to play and and where he wanted to play it. Uh, and he he talked a little bit about um, Outland Liberator um, in, in this specific slot uh, as as the last two drop that he got to play, and he came to that conclusion because of things like Leyline Binding, because of the pressure that it puts on your opponent to cast spells and things like that. And that's kind of the crux of what we're going to talk about today: is how you go from I have this 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 I need I need a two drop. Right? What are my options in two drops? And then how do I pick from those options? It is slightly different, I would say, than like talking about your flex slots, because it's the the information that goes into making the decision rather than the flex slot themselves. Um But Mason, I I'll pitch this next one to you, actually. Uh what do you think are some opportunities to look at a metagame when you're tuning a deck? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of opportunities to jump out to me that are easy to explain, and there are some that, to be fair, are bigger and harder, but kind of hard for us to convey in a podcast form. But an easy one is, like, what is going on when it comes to removal, right? This happens a lot in standard formats, where typically standard formats have some premium removal, and then the threats are then decided in some part and how they line up against that. So, for example, if we look at standard, go for the throat is the most uh, played and universal answer to threats in the format that doesn't require a five-color commitment from Leyline Binding, right? So things that are artifact creatures can be really strong because they dodge go for the throat. There's also cut down in standard, right? So uh, cut down answers a lot of the early threats, but some of them can scale out of it, right? And there are more things going on from there, but you might start picking, you know, like, oh, here's an opportunity to metagame. I found this 3-3 artifact creature that has this upside. I want to play that because it is affecting... I'm sorry, it lines up well against what they're doing and their effects won't line up well against me. And the metagame is moving that direction. So I am tuning internally. Yeah, this came up a lot with, like, I think about the power word kill format and which removal spells you would play at different points depending on... The, the state of the metagame, right? Um, but that that's not just your removal spells, right? That's also deciding what creatures or what sizing you're going to play according to what the answers are in the format, right? 100%. Yeah, like, it, it is more than 
just the removal, right? It, it all connects and interlocks in different ways. And you're going to see that happen as you start to pay attention. So another example might be um, looking back at the Pioneer metagame before RC Dallas. The Boris Convoke deck was on the rise, had just done really well in Magic Line about a week and a half, I believe, before the RC. And we saw players do things like, okay, there aren't any Rogue Graveyard decks right now. Greasefang's the one Graveyard deck. There's this red-white uh, aggressive deck that's popping up. I might play a card like Rending Volley instead of my second Rest in Peace or something like that because I want to have a Rending Volley to answer you know, these two threats here. And now suddenly you can make you know a decision and tune things based on that. Where it's like, oh, okay, like my Graveyard Pivot threat might actually be strong, where my Graveyard deck might be stronger. And things like this happen a lot with trends. Yeah, and I think oh, it's an important distinction when you think about like, okay, we're talking about tuning like to a metagame versus like flex slots, right? Like what's the difference there is like for me, when I think about a flex slot, it's like, okay, am I playing that extra removal spell, that extra threat, you know, that extra over the top card? Or am I playing, like, am I allocating that extra slot that could be one of these different roles into something else? When I'm talking about tuning, I usually try to think of it as, okay, I've decided on what the, the hard count is. Like I'm going to play, six or seven removal spells what is the split that i'm choosing there like to to spend the point about like the power word kill format even for a little bit there in uh in pioneer back when like boats was considered the like the it was the deck that was going to be the best deck and red black had to adjust by saying okay we're going to start playing all removal spells the same count of them but all removal spells that can answer um sky cycle or there were times where then that was happening right power word kill was in the rakdos deck and then suddenly decks like Angels were better positioned. And, um, you know, the Boats deck even went as far as sometimes playing, like, you know, lots of Dragons and Glorybringers, things like that, that would answer the same kinds of problems, right? They're tuning against what they're seeing the removal suite be. So they're saying, okay, I, you're going to be able to kill my Sky Sovereign. I still want a threat that's going to be able to come down and impact the board and, like, be able to take something out uh, on its way in let me adjust to what those things are, right? It can happen in a bunch of different ways, but it's important, I think, when we're talking about this, think about in the context of your deck, what are, right, the roles that your deck is playing? That's your that's your spots, right? That's your flex slots. Of how many numbers of these things, these effects are you playing? But what those effects actually are on the very base level of what's the actual card I'm choosing to do that role is kind of the distinction there between tuning um, and and, like, making your deck Kind of shape change yeah and i think it's important just to keep that in mind i i think that one of the episodes that we did a really good job of breaking down things that care about this type of stuff actually uh the ramp episode Abe, that you and i did where we talked about bridge spells and understanding like the, the how the the role a bridge spell can play whether it be a removal spell or a ramp spell or you know that that fits into this as far as like okay, I need this effect, or I need to get to this turn, or I need to get to this board state, those things need to be decided before you can get to the point where you're now tuning. Are there anything else, Abe, that we are considering when looking at a metagame? Like, you know, we, we mentioned the removal spells, but is there is there something... We mentioned sizing the creatures too, but is there anything else? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important in the same way that we've talked a lot about you know, knowing the rules of engagement of the format, the pillars of the format, knowing what those look like is probably the most important thing to then, uh, like, tuning your deck because 
a big part of that is going to dictate what the good cards are in that moment in the metagame versus what the, you know, kind of good, the pillars are what the good cards always are, right? Those cards are just constantly going to be, um, you know, important things like, you know, you're never going to say like, okay, Fable the Mirror Breaker is in a bad position back in, in that standard format, right? It's, it's just that good a card. But something like Go for the Throat, right, come like the RC in San Diego, I know a lot of people were thinking about cutting Go for the Throats because of um, Razor Lash Trans, uh, Transmogrifier or whatever, the yeah. the three one And still Seraph too, was, was people were considering playing a lot of that in the mono white deck and Exactly. Yeah. And then also, um, you know, the dragon that like when it dies, make the treasures out of the attraction decks. All these were um, were good examples of things that were kind of punishing go for the throat for being the most efficient thing that people were playing a lot of. So it put a lot of onus on the red black players to consider how am I tuning my deck? How am I adapting to the fact that the threats people are playing are going to be in some way advantaged against what they know the removal is going to be? So not only thinking about what the you know, what the best cards are, the pillars, the rules of engagement are, but then how kind of beneath that layer are people trying to to get advantages. So, you know, thinking about like the trends overall, if you know that, right, like uh, Obliterating Bolt was a card that really showed up um, at that time, not only because it was a good answer to uh, like the cards needed exiling, but also like being able to instantly tag Planeswalkers as Liliana the Veil was taking up in popularity, um, you know, being able to, even though it couldn't kill Shieldred, which was an important card at the time, killing these other breadth of things like Obnixiluses and stuff, that all mattered too. And and knowing what it is, what cards it is you're really specifically thinking about beating, I think is a really good way to think about it when you approach, um, approach it. Not just on a, oh, this removal spell is what I'm punking, or this threat is what I'm what I'm punking. It's like, what are the actual specific cards? We're like, yes, thanks to those cards, this is the card I want to draw. Mason, you did a really good job of talking about this. I don't know if it, how long it was at this point, but when we were talking a lot about Yogg for a couple of weeks there on the podcast, one of the rules of engagement for modern, especially with Orcish Bowmaster and uh, Brennan Six, is like thinking about your, like, what kind of mana creatures you can play, right? And Delighted mm-hmm. Halfling, a Boreal Grazer, um, became a topic of conversation. Is like, okay, are there ways that I can still get this effect that I want? without playing into this, without breaking this rule of engagement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like, you know, when those things, when the question gets asked right, it becomes, okay, is there an answer to the problem? And then the follow-up question becomes, is that answer good enough, right? So like, if you want to play some sort of one-mana accelerant creature that can let you get to your stronger cards a bit sooner and then be an enabler for your sacrificing effects... Uh, things like Birds of Paradise and Noble Hierarch and Ignoble Hierarch are kind of the three strongest, right? Like in a vacuum without other cards being existed, those are kind of the Holy Trinity. Um, now, in the real world, there's Ren and Six and Bowmasters and Lava Dart and everything else that does one damage, you know, Fury and all these things line up really poorly. And so it becomes like, okay, what can I do that makes this dynamic less punishing and still let me do my thing? We saw before Delight Halfling, that players like Zerk on Magic Online went to our Boy or Gracer plus Bounce Lands because that helps them get ahead on mana, make all their land drops, do their thing, and it's still dodged, you know, Bowmasters, uh, Ren and Six, Fury, etc. And even in the case of Grazer, if you did kill it, who cared? It was just like, you know, one less body. Um, and then we saw Delighted Halfling sort of ride the line in the middle where it didn't require you to build your deck in a different way and have more lands. And 
in exchange, it's a weaker card at playing the average creature, but it still enables all your stronger starts and dodges these things. So the players did stuff like that, and that's really helpful for understanding kind of what's going on. Um, I think another thing, because I, I love what Abe said there, but the other big one that jumps out to me about like what type of things do we consider when looking at metagames, I think the biggest one that doesn't get talked about enough is the speed of the format, right? When you're playing, you want to make sure that you understand kind of how long the average game is so you can understand how to tune your deck. So, for example, let's say Abe and I are preparing for Modern, and Abe thinks it's a really slow format, and I think it's a really fast format, right? Well, if we fundamentally, coming from that different space, we're not talking about that, we're going to have different tools for the problem, right? Abe might have a card that scales more into the late game, and I might have a card that's less effective but comes down cheaper. A good example might be, like, Tormont's Crypt versus Rest in Peace, right? Both relatively quick, but Tormont's Crypt is like, I really value the premium immediate answer, even if it's just in the short term, because I believe games are short term, right? And that might be something to think about when you're building your deck and looking at your sideboard options and your tuning is like, is this conducive to how the games actually play? Because I want to make sure my deck actually goes with how the games actually go. Well, this 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 came up on the podcast literally last week, Gabe, right? Where you talked about the difference between uh, Leyline and... And Spellbomb. Spellbomb, thank you. Like, and and the belief about where the metagame was at and how you wanted games to play out and, ha- and how to pick one of those. Do you want to talk about that again really quick? Yeah. Um, you know, this was in the context of, like, constructing the scam deck. I was having a conversation with Jarvis, and he, um, at the time, was thinking about Nihil Spellbomb rather than playing Ley Lines because, in his opinion, like, Ley Line was focusing too much on this, like, oh, you know, they're going to, you know, scam Grief You or scam Fury You, and so you need to protect yourself against that, whereas, like, in the reality of it, a lot of the games weren't being decided in that kind of early game because, you know, people were shaving a lot of those effects because of the presence of Ley Line, and, um, you know, it kind of created the shell game of do you want have these ley lines and have your you know not to after alls um and undying evils or is better to have um to have something else and kind of have something that generates a little bit more value but still covers um you know the graveyard stuff as it's as it's there um because in his mind the games were actually coming down to a little bit more of attrition than they were uh speed right and so it's important to think through like you know do you actually think that the scam mirror or a lot of the format, the matches in the format where you need Leyline are ones that are about shutting it off entirely and not letting it get off the ground. So you need a card like Leyline, so it's about your opening hand. Or are the game's actually going longer and it's about making sure that the cards you draw over the course of the game um, actually cover what it is you uh, you need them to. In the end, I think that, right in this case, the practical example, I think Leyline's better and I think even Jarvis kind of changes tune after a little bit more playing. Um, experience the Leyline's better, but that's a good, like, you know, his beliefs coming into that tournament uh, we're talking about of, you know, it's actually about making sure that in a lot of these matchups where you want a card like Spellbomb to shut off the graveyard, it's not imperative you shut off access to the graveyard, it's that you're able to slow it down or interact with it, um, and that matters so much more, and being able to get that card back is going to be a much higher value compared to saying, yeah, you know, I just can't let I can't let my opponent have access to the graveyard at all. It's worth me having to maybe mulligan more or maybe because I know I'm going to be mulliganing a lot to try to have these best draws in my deck with Scam, it's worth having these other cards that make it so I have that best draw. Um, and those are really just two different approaches rooted out of the same 
you know, the same goal of I want it like I'm going to be tuning towards what my graveyard hates looking like because I think the games are more about X versus Y. So to summarize here, we've talked about the speed of the format. We've talked about the rules of engagement in the format that you're playing in. We've talked about the answers of the format. And there, there's an interesting one here that I think we haven't mentioned. And I think that modern is a really good example because we're in modern season to, to help people understand this. You think about something like Ragavan or you think about something like um, Darcy and how they are these X-1s that get to somehow live in this format where we have decided that other things don't get to do that. And it is not unique to any deck. Like, there are multiple decks that play these cards. And I think that when tuning, uh, people will... And we're going to get into this a little bit more, but people will overdo this. They'll be like, oh, I can't play X1s, so I must not want Ragavans. Right? And there, there's this there's this, this problem here when tuning of, like, you, you want to play your powerful cards. You want to have your powerful starts. And what you should be doing when tuning is optimizing for for the things that we talked about, right? You're optimizing for the speed of the format. You're optimizing for the uh, the removal, the answers. You're optimizing for all of these things in the metagame. And so with when you look at cards are, that that break the rules, you should not. You, if the, if they get to break the rules, that's okay. Like. That, that's not a problem. It's not a problem that you get to play these cards. It, it's actually a benefit to Ragavan that Ragavan starts are so strong that I don't actually care that you have Ren and Six in your, like, that Ren and Six exists. Uh, Mason, I see you, like, nodding your head ferociously. For the audio listeners, I would like you to jump in. Sure. I was just thinking about, uh, like, the Avengers assembling. Or whatever with Ragavan. It's just like you're not gonna call, you're not gonna like leave the Hulk out, you know, just because Hulk you're in a small space, you're gonna call the Hulk in. Uh anyways, this my brain works in mysterious ways. Uh and regardless, uh <laughs> I, I think that there is something you know to be said about like you don't want to overdo it. And we do see times where players do side out Ragavan, right? But this is kind of like more exceptions that prove the rule, right? Like just because your opponent is bowmasters doesn't mean you don't want Ragavan. Like if I was playing against the um Cabal Coffer stack. I would want my Ragavans. I might not want it against a mid-range deck that's a lot more bodies on the board, right? I don't really want it against my Yawgmoth, but I would want them against Black Green mid-range, yeah. right? So that all matters uh, to know like that context or whatever, but it is just a thing where it's like, these things come up, you want to be aware of them, and you want to know what the rules are, but they are they need to be very strong to be chilling to the point that you want to completely move off something, right? And just because there is a roadblock in the way does not i'm sorry there's a speed bump does not mean it's a roadblock right and players typically they do not want to go, ever go down anything that is like has any resistance but some resistance is fine there is just going to be that no matter what and you want to be careful that you're not overdoing it because you're probably not smarter than like the cards are strong right and that is simply to say that if you are playing and your deck is a powerful start or whatever uh or there's something really good about your deck until lots of things change, you should just kind of do that because, you know, the metagame will change and will adapt, but it is slow and is not as, like, unstoppable as players think, right? Like, for example, players say Hammer is currently unplayable. Well, uh, Travis continues to, like, do really well with Hammer and won the Apex tournament this past weekend, and I watched him, you know, 
beat a bunch of matchups that are supposedly bad matchups, right? And I think those matchups are bad. And if you played them a million times or whatever, he probably comes out on the losing end a lot. But if you really know your deck and you play it well and you move your deck to work with what's going on, you can maybe overcome that, right? So just to say, not everything has to go that way. Yeah, and, and I think that comes back to like something that I said kind of early on in this topic, which is that there are going to be cards that are parts of pillars of the format, and those are not going to change, right? We're talking about tuning your deck. You're not going to give up the core of what makes your deck strong. You never want to give up the core of what makes your deck strong in a vacuum in order to make these games, right, by by tuning towards what the metagame is kind of saying. Like, it's a difference between when you're playing, like, for me, it's like playing something like Hammer. Okay, I'm not going to put Memnite in my deck anymore because that card is too vulnerable to things like Bowmasters, things like Run and Six, things like Fury. And that's, I can make my deck still function in the way that's still very powerful about it at its core without putting this card into my deck, right? I can find an alternative that plays into kind of the pace of the game that I want to play, right? But with something like Ragavan, even though a very common check in the format, right? Like we're talking about is Bowmasters and Red and Six, right? The, the one point of damage, the one body in the way. Um, in the games where that doesn't happen, right? The upside on Ragavan is so high and the swaths of the format where these things don't happen to Ragavan are so the upside's so high that you can't want to cut it. it. It is that good. And if you do, you're actually losing a lot of points that right now you're going from tuning your deck to kind of changing the shape of it because you're losing an entire axis on which you might normally fight uh, fight the game. So I think it's a really, really great distinction you made there, Mason. And I want to like really hammer that home because a lot of the times what people do is take a thesis too far and wind up undermining the core of their deck because they're trying to avoid every single little thing that's going to uh, right, that, that they're worried about making so their deck is weak rather than embracing the things that make their deck strong. I just did a coaching session with one of our patrons and it, uh, we, we, I had him write down the rules of engagement for modern. Um, and then we reviewed them together and rewrote them and, and d- defined them. And one of the things that we kind of talked about was, one of the things that I required of him for our next session is that he needs to come back to me with when it is okay to break these rules. What what are the reasons to break these rules? And I think I think that maybe it's the pop punk kid in me, but like there, like there has to be a reason to break rules. I mean, Mason, what is it that you say? Heuristics are the what? Heuristics are the death of tournaments. Like you can't you can't be bound to a list of rules in a game as complex as magic. But what you can do is you can play a Ragavan on turn one, attack and then blood moon your opponent. And then all of a sudden it didn't matter if they had a red and six because they didn't have it in their opening hand. And now they actually can't play the game. I got to ask you, Abe, how does this differ from just normal deck construction? That's something that we've kind of talked about a bit rather than like building your deck from the ground up to choose a deck that's going to attack well into these metagame factors, right? Um, you know, finding a deck that plays by the rules of engagement better. This is kind of aligning your deck on uh, right on, on a very tunable level without adjusting the core of what your game plan or strategy is to those rules and to what's happening in the format and really staying like, you know, if you want to be someone who can, who can be week to week or month to month with the format, this is really the practice of doing that with your one deck, right? Taking your archetype and adjusting what can be flexible within it to um, to what you're seeing happen around you, rather than kind of adjusting your entire approach 
to the problem of the format in the metagame. Um, I think that's like really the, the biggest thing, right? This is about the smallest micro changes you can make on a card to card level rather than a slot to slot level or a deck to deck level or a you know sideboard to main deck level. It's really just, okay, what are the specifics of the cards I'm using to solve my problems rather than, um, you know, what are what is the archetype I'm choosing to solve my problems? Um, you know, what is my approach to a format where these are the problems? Uh, you know, it's it's really just building. You've already built. Now let's kind of be a little bit more flexible in your framework and how we're adjusting. Mason, we've we've mentioned this, but I want you to like hammer at home. Like, how do you not overdo this? How do you, or or can I? Can I overdo it? Can I not just? Can I not just know what? every person in the room is going to play and build my deck perfectly. Yeah. The, the, the incentives just normally aren't there for the average person on the average tournament, right? Like when you see a lot of these things happen and there's these really cool moments and they get really exciting and players are really smart. It's at things like pro tours and RCs or invitationals, right? So when I was coming up in magic, I imagined like the star city games invitationals, which you can go back on YouTube and watch. And people would do these like crazy metagame calls or like change like individual cards like we're talking about. So for example, I'd be playing Razor Lash Transmogrant over Rafine, right? Because it's just like whole stop, beats everything that's going on, blah, blah, blah. And in like an eight, 16 person, you know, 100 person field or whatever, that is doable. Where in the average tournament, things can't really go that way. And not everyone is going to shift or have the ability to shift or see things the same way you do. So it's important to remember that like, Thinking about stuff in Magic is really fun. And thinking about metagames is really fun. And a lot of people enjoy that, even sometimes more than actually playing. Um, but it is important to remember that, like, playing good, tight, technical Magic, having a reasonable approach to all this is what matters more. And if your choice doesn't pass the reasonable deck gamer bar of, like, oh, this is makes sense, logical, it's not overreactionary, you know, I'm not, like, giving up a ton a ton in order to do this then it probably isn't the right thing to do and even if you do all of these things i really want to hammer home it just it doesn't matter as much as playing good magic does right like understanding your role in the matchup understanding what's going on in the turn understanding how the games are going to play out understanding good attacks and blocks those things matter way more how to mulligan all those things matter way way more than like in this week abe I played the three, three artifact creature and it's like, yeah, that was good, but you didn't really know how to do anything else. And so you lost. One of my favorite quotes uh, that I used to say on this podcast all the time, when we were talking about like the SH tour back in it's like glory days was that Thunderbreak region is a bad card, but people play bad cards on the SCG tour. And the truth is, is that despite the decisions that you've come to, or the, the conclusions, I should say, that you've come to on the metagame or on the, the, the format, not everyone is going to come to that conclusion. Uh, there uh, There's a great uh, short of Abe actually talking about this on our YouTube channel. You should check it out. Um, they're, they're, you're just not going to come to the same conclusions, people. So if you overdo this, you're going to end up losing to the thing that you thought was bad. Yeah, it's really easy to undermine the way your deck functions if you get too cute and think too hard about how you're going to, you know, outsmart everyone by changing your deck to make it so you're not susceptible to this one thing and forget about all the blind spots and all of the 
you know, especially in a format that's really broad, forget about all of the possible other things you might not, there's too many things to think about to really get a full picture of it. And if you overdo it, the cost is so much higher than doing it correctly, or you would have been better making no changes. So it really is about finding a balance and where it is you, right, where it is you're gaining against these very specific small edges and letting those add up to be your success rather than trying to overhaul everything all the time because that's how you're going to wind up you know burning yourself to, to mason's point right if you're it's really fun to think about how you're going to outsmart the metagame and to an extent you will and you can outsmart the metagame and get those edges on the times where your opponent dies because they have that go for throat in their hand when they wish it was in the brain right like that is a very very real thing but it can't be that you're like, ah, I'm going to beat every go for throat that's ever drawn. But then you lose to every single other thing, right? You lose to a deck that just has like only blades of braids. Um, where maybe before your deck had more more things that would, would live through that. Um, you know, you can't you can't beat it all like that. And it's just important to 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 practice a little bit of moderation there. Yeah. Um I, I wish that I had like a good summary for this episode. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna actually summarize this way. Uh, a braid is like the perfect example. I'm glad you brought it up, Abe, of a card that we're talking about here, where you have a slot. You it's not it's not just a flex slot, but it is it is I have decided to play my go for the throats. I have decided to I want to Sheldred's the best card in the format. I want to beat Sheldred. Um, Go for the throat is the best answer for that in the format, but I know that people are gonna play Steel Seraph. I know people are gonna play uh, the these other artifact creatures to to try and punish me. And in order to, you know, to hedge, in order to care about the mini game, I'm just gonna pick up this braid that's already in my sideboard, put it in my main deck, and move forward. And it it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. And often we make it more complicated than that. We adjust our entire deck strategy. We adjust our entire, our entire like view of the format upon one little thing. And it doesn't have to be that way. It can be as simple as just playing that upgrade that's in your sideboard and moving on. Patreon question. This is from Trey. He says, on a scale of zero to ten, cruise and dig being an eight. This is an interesting scale. Um, what would you put beads in a ring uh, in a world where they all existed in the same format? How would you build your deck if you would access to that much card draw? Is there a point of diminishing returns or do they play better in their respective archetypes? So first of all, I have, I have a lot of thoughts. Uh, your scale is interesting where we have cruise and dig at an eight. I assume we're talking about modern here, right guys? Or like, yeah. yeah, okay. I, I think we should just pick one because they said in a format. I, that it had like, I, I guess the ring's only in modern. Yeah, and, like, league league is yeah, ring yeah, is yeah, only yeah, modern. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That, that's fair. That's uh, so fair. first of all, I think that if Treasure Cruise was legal, there would be two worlds, and I hope that I live uh, my brain lives in the right one. The first world is there's no reason to play a bean in a world of Treasure Cruise. Because you get all of your you get all of your cards at once, you get to be faster, more lean. You don't have to do all of the things that being involves. It wouldn't even matter. Um, the other world is the world that I don't want to live in, 
Or for some reason, the bean decks that play all these fetch lands are also playing treasure crews. That sounds miserable. I do think there's diminishing returns. And that's why we've already seen bean decks dropping the ring. Where they're like, alright, we actually don't need both of these things. This is actually a little bit too much in some ways. I, it Just depending on how you want to build it. it, it with these cards... I, I, so first of all, I don't think that Dig Through Time and Treasure Cruise are on the same thing. First of all, I think Treasure Cruise is... Like, in both modern and in older formats, Treasure Cruise is better. Um... Yeah, digs a card selection spell. Yeah, it, like uh, Treasure Cruise is, is like actually insane. So if, if we're I putting Treasure Cruise as an as an eight, these cards are not coming close. I, I think Treasure Cruise is better than all these cards. That's I guess that's my answer. So you put them at less than an eight. Yeah, well, you're less than an eight with a non-committal number. Yeah, well, like the problem the problem is yeah. is like obviously <laughs> I, I would put the ring higher than Beans, to, other than mm -hmm. the fact that Beans is now like. Clear the the pitch elementals have have made beans so much better. I can't hold it in. I don't want to interrupt you too much. No, go ahead. Just like when people talk about beans, they act like beans is a treasure cruise, right? But is who's at fault? Is it beans or is it solitude fury leyline? Oh, it's clearly it, does, it's clearly not beans' fault. Yeah, it, it's, it's like not. that one sketch for the guy where he's wearing the the hot dog and the hot dog car crashed into the party, I, and he's like, "We're all trying to figure out who caused this here." Yeah, and that's solitude fury. It's clearly not beans. It's just not like beans is fine. It's like so. I I just wanted to get that out. I'll, I'll let you take back over. I know. I know. I, I, I agree. I head. think that you like, you said what I was trying to say. Like beans by itself is like I don't know a five. Like it's fine. Oh, I don't think Beans is close to... Like, here's a good example. Where is Beans seeing play in other... And, like, in, it's just Beans... In every format, Mason. Not, not Pioneer. It's, like, Medium and Pioneer, it right? Sees, and standard, it sees play in Pioneer. As a four sees, of. I, it's... Enigmatic Fires. It li sees, literally, people play differing numbers. All right. Like, if we go check right now... I, I'm, I'm just saying that, like... If Beans was as strong as Treasure Cruise, it would be oh, I agree. every... We, we're in violent agreement. Terms. This is one of my favorite terms. We violently agree on this. I'm just saying, like... Wait, are you saying it's lower than a five? Yes, because, like, in standard, <laughs> it is a five because uh, the ramp decks are the best decks. Yeah. Right? And so the... Because... Sorry, the ramp deck is the best deck because the mid-range cards are so strong. Right, it is like a parasite that eats off of that. Yeah, I do not think that the like ramp deck is the best deck in a vacuum in standard, but currently it is. So we're seeing it see play yeah. there. But beans is not a card you would play if aggro decks were the best. Like yeah. your deck might play it, but it won't be the best. I I would put treasure cruise for what it's worth. I would put or not treasure cruise. I would put dig through time and ring pretty close to each other in power level, of like one because one of them's colorless. I think that that gives it a bump. Um, that's just my thought. I, I, well, I think the ring is stronger than these cards, but I want I want to let Abe talk a little oh, bit. Oh, so okay, interesting. I think, uh, yeah. So I think that if these cards all existed in the same format, uh, right? If we had like a, a modern where all eight, four of these cards are more legal, you know how like the beans decks now play like some number of commandeer in the main deck and the sideboard. Yeah, <laughs> they would be doing that with like just four of those and playing treasure cruises and whatever to steal your cruise and your dig. 
mm-hmm. and fight these wars over like whoever gets off the ground in terms of being able being allowed to draw cards winds up winning an even more snowball adventure and it would be so toxic but i would enjoy it for like a day like i'd play <laughs> one tournament be like wow that was great and then i'd hop on magic online and be like make it i stop. like to think that like red red blue prowess should just be like literally dumpster these decks for what it's no they wouldn't even be close they yeah i don't i don't think those decks are very good like i think breaches i'm talking i'm talking playing five color omnath so i can pitch it to my soul spike i'm throwing everything at this like we're not paying mana for spells anymore if we don't have to this is like like everything we're going to what? What's that in-app browser or in-browser app? Like Honey or whatever. Where it's yeah. like everything's on sale if you know how to look, and it's like, yeah, my whole deck is built like this. I'm playing five-color Honey. To be that's, fair, yeah, uh, just to be clear, uh, Honey, we have reached out to you. We would love a sponsorship. Uh, anyway, keep going. Yeah, I love yeah. You playing five-color Honey? I have all of my uh, all of my answers would be would be pitchable and free, and I'd be able to draw cards off of each of them because that's how the cards are designed. You, so am I the and only then, one rating these? I've given I've given seven. So I, I'm getting there. I'm getting oh, yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. So, this is still a long Patreon question, but it's worth it. it yeah, there's, there's like four questions in this one question. <laughs> yeah. I'm answering the piece of how would I build my deck if they were all available? And I would I would probably have an end game that was to use like Jace four to trump everything else. Like the wind sculptor, no, leave no. the deck yourself one, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, I mean, like, like oh, baby, oh, baby. Three. I like where you're going. <laughs> I someone was doing that in their bean deck at the RCO I was at this weekend. I'm doing that for the Super League in two days, so I hope it's right. <laughs> yeah. So like, I but I would be like all in zero on, like, endurances, three Jace fours. If I was on the single stock, game over. Like I, I might even be playing like some silence in there to really make sure I can maneuver and have my end game because I will draw my whole deck. As terms of power, there is diminishing returns, and we're seeing that in things. But like the most egregious thing I think about the ring and beanstalk to a degree is the way that they actually play out. Is that it's not necessarily the access to the cards that is making them too like so powerful in the format. It's that the way that you make uh, Up the Beanstalk work in a way that is really powerful is to play these really, really strong defensive options that then give you a ton of time to use the fact you're netting cards on these exchanges where you're like pitching for your solitudes or furies and like you were two for twoing your opponent on your fury and now you are getting a card out of it or you're like getting your opponent's entire man expenditure on a turn for the solitude and you're like going even on a card with it. Um, so like catching back up that way versus uh or like the one ring where like i will play the one ring and some decks you will just not be able to interact with me or do anything to me for an entire turn cycle and i will take my draw step plus an activation or two and then like do something else to the board and then cast another one ring you can't interact with because i've now seen two of them and in that way i think it's much more similar to dig through time and kind of a big problem in my opinion with the card dig through time is that it's too strong of card selection for the format so it like it narrows the amount of time your opponent has interact by saying like i'm going to set up my stupid two card combo by looking at seven cards and then finding either the other piece from the one i had in my hand or just both of them together right like that's the splinter twin decks did back in the day and i think the way that the card advantage is coupled with the ability to either like invalidate the window in which you would be able to interact while they're supposed to be setting up to draw cards or um like 
is actually controlling or defining the window in which you get to interact, those are the problems with those cards. Not necessarily like with Treasure Cruise specifically, that one was just, okay, this is too easy to access card advantage if you're just playing a bunch of the cheapest cards, which made it really, really powerful. And it's kind of uniquely a problem there where the cards around Treasure Cruise actually, all being the fast, aggressive cards at that time, um, made it as good as it was. All right, I'm but in this the, case, I'm gonna like, I'm going to build a blue red prowess deck. You're gonna gonna get and I get to build, you get we get to build, build the, the cruise yes. dig, you get the, to build cruise the cruise dig beanstalk the, ring cruise, deck. Yes. And we're going to, we're going to battle oh. on the CCMTG YouTube channel. I just disagree. Oh. I, I just think that you will not win. I, Spencer. But we have uh, to build as though this is the Spencer, format. I'm going to commandeer your treasure cruise. <laughs> You're going to lose? Spencer, I. I mean this in the nicest way possible. This is your most boomer moment ever. Where yeah. it's just like you're what you're saying is true if every spell costs mana, but eight spells don't cost mana. And it's not it's like Yeah, you're gonna play like, you're gonna play Monastery Swiss Spear and I'm gonna fury it and draw two cards. <laughs> and like your deck isn't bad. I wanna make that very clear. I don't think I, I'm like laughing because it, it's just it was just a funny boomer moment. It's not. It's no, not I would just want to play Elusive Otter. Can we just let me play Elusive Otter for a second? That we can do that. As long as <laughs> we're all to play all the spells, and you're getting to play Elusive Otter. We're all happy. But like, yeah. yeah, do you think Abe's gonna be like, yeah, you can sign the deed to your house, man. That's cool. Here's my paperwork. <laughs> I just, me, I, it's, it's like so. So I do, I do fundamentally disagree with what's being said here, and maybe, yeah. maybe I'm too boomer. Like that, I, I totally could believe that. But I just think that, like, if your entire plan is, like, cascading into these beans and then, like, going from there, I just think you'll be dead too fast. I don't think he's going to cascade. I mean, I, I don't want to speak for Abe. I don't want to speak for Abe. I, I, I'm, not, I'm thinking about not cascading oh, like, okay. in this world. Because, like, Are you also playing do... the ring? I guess maybe I don't understand the, the deck here. Well, they probably wouldn't play the ring. Honestly, I would think you couldn't. Just be beans. Yeah, you can't have too many of the things, and like, I think rings and beans kind of go in different directions. Like, while Abe thinks about how he'd build this hypothetical deck really quickly, like I imagine Dig would be very good in like where you see BTL decks that play ring and BTL. Oh, that's a so similar thought. thing would happen. I don't with, think like, I do that. Dig through time. Yeah. Well, I, so you see that. So me, once again, Abe and I are different. We haven't had this conversation. I'm imagining Abe's decks looking like that. Okay. And you're and you're just gonna die. All right, I'm just gonna and, I'm just gonna get supreme verdicted and die. Yeah, well, Abe's like the thing is, it's not like Abe's only playing these card draw cards. And I've one sort. I think even if Abe spells cost one mana, he probably would lose to you. But the problem is, the Abe spells don't cost mana, <laughs> so he's just gonna murder you. And then you're gonna be like, "All right, boy, here's my treasure cruise." And Abe's gonna be like, "No, comrade, my treasure cruise." And then come and then I'll it, force him negation. <laughs> Oh no! I can't Buddy. do that during my turn. <laughs> no, hey. you're not. Yeah, you're not. I'm gonna force negation. Yeah, I, I am the one who knocks. I am the one who knocks, Spencer. Like, it is, that was I a great moment. Somebody needs to clip. I that can't be this short because like it doesn't make sense. But like when I realize that I can't force some negation, his commandeer. Somebody needs to clip that. I, I just I like when I when I, when I think about I'll say this, I, this is the thing where I'm like, all right, well maybe 66 cards finally make sense. <laughs> Anyways, but it's like like I just 
if my deck is all interaction, like I think Abe did a great point of like you interact a bunch, the game slows down, your opponent doesn't have access to their whole deck. What an idiot! And now they're dead. Like you know, like that. That is when it comes down. And I think your deck would be like, uh, I almost said a bad word on the like a bad bad word on the podcast, Spencer. I think your deck would be strong. I think the problem wouldn't be that your deck isn't good. It's that it just doesn't line up well against what this is. But I think like if your deck plopped into current modern, the one you're talking about, blue red prowess. I think you would be one of the best, if not the best deck in the format, uh, if that was like the only thing that could do those things. Like those cards are messed up in real ways. Um, yeah. So God, wait, give me give me your scale, Abe. So that Mason yeah, give me so his I think scale. That, like in a so like one ring comes in to me. I think like in terms of card draw power, like it depends on what ring scale. As a card, I think the one ring is like a nine or a ten. In terms of power, if, if I think if as a card, as a card draw eight. option only. But we're saying with Treasure Cruise, you have to with Treasure Cruise at an eight. I think Treasure Cruise yeah. is probably an eight, an eight or nine, anyways. I I, th- I think that the One Ring is like a, a nine or a ten, but that's because of the fact that the trigger is so strong. Sure. And even if the cruise cruise plays into more things that are typically powerful, because you can play a bunch of one and two mana, like one and zero or one and two mana things, and then cruise and, like, continue to cast more of those spells and, like, chain them off, that's really strong. Whereas the One Ring, like... And the same reason the Beanstalk is so oppressive, right? That was, like, the, the crux of my initial statement, is that, like, those things have built-in mechanisms to allow you to use the cards by way of what surrounds them or the trigger on the one. So, like, either because you're playing Beanstalk and a bunch of free spells that interact with the opponent, you're going to have the time to use all of your incidental card draw over the course of the game and out-resource your opponent... Or, in the case of the One Ring, you're going to generate time by casting the One Ring to then use your resource advantage to eventually out-resource the opponent. Because you will turn out a huge amount of resources. I, I, I view the One Ring as like, is like a mix between Treasure Cruise and Dig Through Time. It, like give, it, it will get you to something that will get you to what you need. It, and it gives you time. Um, and it also generates our card advantage. But it being 4 mana, I think, is restrictive compared to something like Trigger Cruise to me. Yeah, I just think it having uh, the trigger makes it much stronger than... I can buy your argument. I was just I was just clarifying where my head was at with it. Yeah. All right, Mason. Now that, now that you get to stop being the peanut gallery and actually voice your, your true opinion, what's your scale? Yeah, so I think a lot of my, my thoughts on the other things have been answered. I think Beans is probably a four. Maybe it's a five. I think it's like like, I think Beans is not that big a deal if there's one card that enables it, right? Like, having Leyline Binding be right. the only thing is, like, cool. And, like, that's strong. And if you build your deck with a bunch of other cards in mind with it, that is dope. That is, like, textbook cool magic. And it is the sins of MH2 and free spells that are causing these problems. If Solitude was a zero-mana card, you know what I mean? Like, this wouldn't be, like, this is not how the game works. If it's a digital game, it probably works. It's fine. Um, so Beans, for. But it's good for in solitude and whatever, like nine or ten. But it's like I'll you do the math on who's carrying the weight there. Anyways, uh, I, I think the one ring, like Ape said, because it buys time and gives you something that these other spells don't. It like is really high for me, right? Like treasure cruise being one mana in some ways gives you time because you're committing less to get your cards than the ring is. Um, and like dig through time is a similar argument, and you see a bunch up front and make your choice, but the ring specifically giving you that trigger 
gives you time to use your cards, but also means that in the later game, the diminishing return thing we're talking about applies to the ring less. Because one of the big questions is, hey, is there diminishing returns having a lot of cards? Well, the answer is yes. This is why you don't see every Phoenix player default to 12 cantrips for a piece of the puzzle, right? There is some amount of like, maybe I want to play 10 or 11 because I want to have more spells. You can't just have only cards that draw cards. That will not be a conducive to winning games. Same thing in Legacy. You don't see Puritane, Brainstorm, and Ponder all as four ofs typically. Every now and again, you see all four of the deck. Like, I'm sorry, all three as four ofs in one deck. But you don't always see them because you can't just have all air all the time. So I don't know the last time I saw a Legacy deck playing Puritane, but that deck sounds hot. Is it Sneak and Show? Yeah, Are you I mean, talking about Sneak and Show? Like Sneak, sneak and Show, okay, cool, um, cool. some amount of the, the Shadow decks have played it as a one of. Um, there's been like nine cantrip decks or whatever. Um, I think like a four color list I copied once had one, but you know, like it's just w- when you're like, you need to have another little thing. And 80 card decks also make this a little easier to fit in there. Um, regardless, though, like there is diminishing returns uh, to having a bunch of card draw and you need to have things to do, which is why like, I like the idea of Abe's deck. Like if I had to pick the head to head between Spencer's hyper efficient aggressive deck and Abe's free spells, I do everything all the time. It's like, well, he can actually like deploy his things consistently and always do them. And the card draw even has buyout clauses with his other cards in his deck. So um, I think the ring is like probably a 10. I'm of the belief that the ring shouldn't be a magic card. Um, I I fundamentally hate the ring. And like, there are a lot of things you can do to make me not hate the ring, but I think the ring is a 10 and egregious and feels to me like it wasn't play tested. Like I I don't know how that card got out the door. Okay. So so what is, what is uh, beans is a four and rings a 10. Rings of 10. Treasure Cruise is an 8. What is Day Through Time in your mind? I think Dig... It, it matters so much in the context of Dig. Like, Dig on its own is weaker than Cruise, but Dig in context of other things can be stronger, in my yeah. opinion. It really matters on what it's enabling and what the format allows for it to enable. So, like, for example, if you... Here, here's another great example. Dig and Cruise are unbanned, and Spencer can play his blue red deck with cruise and I can play my BTL deck with dig. I feel pretty good about where I'm sitting in that spot. Right. Um, but me versus the format at large, I don't know, but I think I would still be pretty happy. So I'm going to guess that dig sits between like a six and an eight and probably averages out to being like a seven and a half. I would say, I, I think, I dig think is there's really a 0% good. chance your deck plays for dig. And there's a hundred percent chance that my deck plays for cruise. I would cut all the BTLs and just play decks. Ooh. I don't like that if you're playing Dean. I'm not. I'm going to play BTL and Ring. I'm not starting to play Dig and Ring. That's what I'm saying. Like, my oh, BTL deck it, is breaking the Bring okay. Lights, and I'm removing Valky and all that shit. And, like, and I'm bringing in going, my hyper-efficient card. All of these decks seem weird. All right. That is, that's too much time on a Patreon question. That's like a no, that bonus episode question no, that, that we just that awesome. spent 20 minutes on. That, we need it. I, th- I think we've all had a lot of beans and ring in the last that we've been we've been letting simmer between the show. Dude, straight <laughs> up, like I'm everybody's like ban bean. I'm like I oh, I would ban bean so fast. I mean, yeah, you would ban too. bean. I would ban I would ban the ring if I can only ban one card. It's the ring. It's, it's triumphs in the ring, and then it's bean. either the ring or it's either the ring or grief to me. So you see, I think if ring and bean are gone, there are decks that can actually. Can we just ban both? Can we just ban grief and the ring? Can we just ban Bean and the Ring? 
Mason, I mean, honestly, Mason, I, I'd, I'd like to be insulting Fury. Why don't you just unban something and fix the Whoa, whoa, whoa. Mason, you can't say that. You can't say that. I don't want insult Fury. No, no. This car's why? Why do we live Dude, in a sol- world sol- where solitude? Creatures- solitude, I be- I believe, I I believe like so. I believe that the all of the other elementals might be getting punished for solitude's crimes. I'm not even joking. I, I, I think, like, they are so messed up, and they. I think solitude should call the white to a vote. <laughs> I, I think they should all cost mana. Like, like, why? Why is it like? Also, why is Solitude Swords to Plowshares and not Pat? You get to like, ask a question or leave a comment on the YouTube channel. This week's question comes from our short where Mason talked about scales. And the question, Mason, is what is scales? Scales is a modern deck. It is short for Hardened Scales, which is an enchantment that is the namesake of the deck. It is a deck that leans on creatures that use plus one, plus one counters synergistically. It is very similar to the Affinity deck of old if you played back then kind of the modern age era that basically the like 20 second pitch is your deck has a bunch of creatures that have plus one plus one counters and synergize well together with that from there uh you then have some pretty powerful abilities to, like win the game with a card called arcbound ravager and moving the counters around and like doubling and so there's just a lot of like i take the kind amount i have the counters i have and i kind of double them twice and kill you also i threw one my fnm with that deck what up Deck's dope. It's Lo- too hard. I lost to that deck. Uh, my opponent, my opponent was playing that deck, uh, and they had they they turn one. They played Walking Ballista against me in the challenge, mm-hmm. and I like we, I was on the call mat. I was like, I don't know what the Hardened Scales matchup is supposed to look like for Rhinos, but I'm a hundred percent sure it's bad if they play turn one. <laughs> uh, if they, if they play a turn one, a Bassless Caller. Like I I am positive this matchup is now bad. <laughs> Uh, Basilisk car, yeah, yeah. What did uh, I say? You said walking ballista. Oh you no, they play. Other. They they play. Turn one, they went just played Basilisk caller, and I was like, Oh yeah, no. Oh, I'm I'm dead. Like there's yeah, you got you, you got spaghetti. <laughs> I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get breakfast. I'll see you for round two. <laughs> I, I I got I, I had an almost improving moment though, an interaction that came up that I learned from the other Hearn Skills player at FNM. What I learned is that when they living end. Your modular triggers, even though everything kind of like happens, it all happens simultaneously, and the creatures in your graveyard will get the modular triggers. What? So your opponent casts Living End, right? And yeah. like, let's say I have a creature in the yard that's like, I don't know, a random artifact, and I got an Arcbound Ravager in play. If I let the Living End resolve, my modular thingy will happen, and it goes on the card. You sound like a judge that's giving wins in game three of a match without telling both players. That's all I'm going to say. If you want to join the conversation, head on over to the Patreon Discord. Uh, it's 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 one of the best ways. We got awesome people in there uh, talking about this type of stuff. You can join the public Discord, where it's just the He's a Gaming Media Discord. You can ask a question like, what is scales on the YouTube comments? Or follow us on Twitter at CCMTG. Um, you can also check out Drafting Archetypes. Uh, we, about to wrap up this format, I think that this was one of Sandblock's very best formats. Um, and I, looking at these cards, I do think that this next format will be another really good one where, like, Sam will be one of the voices um, for the format and kind of how complex these cards are and things like that. So check that out. Um, and then one of the best ways to support the show is just to subscribe, review, like, wherever you're listening. Um, it, it helps the show more than you could possibly imagine. You know, I don't know how long it takes you to, to go on Apple and leave a review, but... 
get you know get, getting us the, that five stars and you know if, if we deserve it and going through that is it actually helps us more than you could ever know if people want to find you abe we're going to do that you can find me over at twitter.com slash more nothings uh and you can send me dms if you want to inquire about coaching uh i have just about one spot left uh for anyone interested uh or you can send me email over at uh more nothings at gmail.com uh how about you mason you can find me here on the show each and every week you can find me at twitch.tv slash the mason clark you can find uh me on twitter at mason e clark if you want to reach out for coaching you can find me there or uh via emailing me which is the exact same mason e clark at gmail.com uh, put coaching in the byline i have some spots open which is really exciting and i also had uh some cool stuff being announced for patrons of the coaching stuff so if you want to check that out there's some cool things that happened over there and that is it spencer what about you uh yeah if you want to find me you can find me at easy game uh, i have open dms for coaching um i am opening my coaching a lot actually right now i'm usually pretty selective about the people that i work with and what i'm doing but i actually am pretty in in need right now so um that's that sounds weird but like you know if, if the thing that i bring on the podcast is something that has helped you and you feel like you could get some help one-on-one with me um you know, hit me up there or at spencerhowland.gmail.com um you can also find me on the need to nerd podcast where i talk about nerd culture or smash through a podcast about always improving focusing on smash bros yeah that is gonna do it what did we learn on the show this week i don't like the order because i'm first this week and I feel like after our conversation, I want to change the order. I want Mason to go first. Carlin Spencer just he, he learned he learned something about them free spells today. He learned them kind of messed I don't know up. I learned something. You learned that I learned something. That's what you learned. Yeah, yeah. I learned, I, 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 I learned I that nobody takes this segment seriously but me. No, uh, Abe, what did you learn this week? I learned that mason is not as arcbound ravager knowledgeable as i thought he would be that whole living in thing man that's basic that's basic knowledge I never I played didn't, the dude i didn't i didn't know that either for what it's worth and i i would have expected that i knew that because i played with living end and affinity but i just take for granted how much how much arcbound ravager i've slung in the day i guess that makes sense for you one of my early magic memories someone telling me you should play affinity as my first modern deck it's really easy it doesn't take much thought and i thought that seems odd isn't that the deck with all the dice and then a friend let me play a game for pickup and i was like this deck's too hard and i put it down it do got it do got all the dice that's true <laughs> like, that's a good way to identify it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> the dice scale of difficulty uh i like that quote too i honestly really enjoyed this show not every show that we go into do like, I'm like, oh, like, hi, like, whatever. And this show was actually really hard to go into to go behind the curtains of, like, what are we delivering? What are we helping the, the listener with? And kind of hearing your guys' thoughts of how you look at a metagame and how you can approach tuning your deck accordingly. I don't know that I, like, learned to look at removal, right? But learning, like, your approach, for example, I, I think, I, Abe, you, you, this is something you did really well in San Diego, is when, when you decided to play 
the quote unquote best tech, like you cared deeply about this specific topic and how you approached it, you know, whether or not you missed on things like certain planeswalkers or whatever, you still approached it knowing that Razor was going to be a card. You still approach it knowing that Steel Seraph was going to be a card. You still approached it like, okay, but like, what are the rules that I have to go into with this? And, you know, I, I think that Mason often did this with, with four color uh, or fight, you know, with the Omnath deck, whenever he would build is like, you know, I, I could change all, like, you know, all these cards, like all these people are doing, but is there actually a reason in the metagame to do that? Right. And so while I don't think that I learned something specifically about the topic, I think that I learned that you both have experience in this thing that I have always considered myself really good at in tuning that I don't know. I, I just came to appreciate you two a lot more. So I really enjoyed that part of this episode. That is going to do it this week. Uh, thank you everybody so much for listening. And we'll see you all next week with another episode of the Constructed Criticism Podcast. <laughs>